2: This is the Tom Hartman Program. Tom Hartman here with you.
3: There's a couple of things that I wanted to just lay on the table and have a conversation with you about. Right now, as a result of something that Trump said in Davos, I would say, and I think there's a strong argument to say, that Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid are all officially in the crosshairs of the Trump administration. I mean, they always have been in the crosshairs of the Republican Party. The Republicans have fought Social Security since 1935 when it was passed. They have fought Medicare and Medicaid since the late 1960s, I think of 67 when they were passed. But usually they say that they're actually trying to save it. You know, like when, when Ronald Reagan changed the rules around Social Security so that your Social Security benefits are now subject to federal income tax and tied it to the cost of living adjustment that is... You know, that includes, you know, average people. That doesn't take into consideration the relatively unique concerns and expenses of uh, older people, people over 65, which include medical expenses and transportation and things like that, housing, food, rather than, you know, new computers. So, you know, Reagan said, "Well, I'm strengthening Medicare and, or, excuse me, Social Security." And and to some extent they did. I mean, they doubled the Social Security tax. But with that single exception, generally when Republicans tweak Social Security, what they're intending to do is bust it up. Because, you know, there's this $2.7 trillion trust fund. Social Security has, you know, a trillion dollar a year cash flow, I believe, or something in that neighborhood. It's substantial. And the banks in New York are looking at this. I mean, Pete Peterson, you know, became a billionaire by being a bankster in new york he's passed along and passed away now but his institute still survives ranting about the debt and how you know with this much debt we can't afford social security and that social security tax should be going right into the treasury to pay down the debt and social security should be handled by citibank (laughs) bank of america and wells fargo don't you know so Anyhow, while hobnobbing with uh, other billionaire oligarchs in Davos, Switzerland, billionaire oligarch Donald Trump said, and I quote, before the end of the year, sometime before the end of the year, he and his administration will be, quote, cutting entitlement programs. The billionaires, of course, thought that that was just a fine thing. His speech was, you know, broadly applauded. It's uh, unlikely he's going to do this before November 3rd, Election Day. But whether he is or isn't reelected, if he's saying before the end of the year he's gonna cut social security and Medicare and Medicaid, then I think you can probably expect that November fourth he's gonna propose it and the Republicans still control the Senate and they're gonna go for it. It's not gonna get through the House. Nancy Pelosi will stop that. But it highlights how important this election is coming up. If you're over sixty five, or for that matter, if you know if you're over fifty and you're and you're anticipating having Social Security as part of your retirement, or if you're any age and you anticipate Social Security as part of your retirement, this election is going to be a really, really critical one. And for that matter, if you're of any age, Social Security is still important. Say you're 25 years old. You, most people don't realize if you're 25 years old and you get in a car accident and break your back so that you're paralyzed from the waist down or break your neck, so you're paralyzed from the neck down, as happened to my, my dear friend, Michael Hutchison. And he spent the rest of his life, you know, the next 15 years or so, he was on this program a number of times, in fact, talking about this, spent the rest of his life in a, an apartment in Santa Fe, New Mexico with a full-time nurse taking care of him because he literally, you know, could not move anything except the muscles of his head and his face. He could talk, that was it. And he could breathe. I mean, it hadn't completely shut him down. But Michael was able to stay alive because of Social Security disability. And Michael was in his 40s when this happened. So you have right now, regardless of your age, you could be 10 years old, 25, 50, whatever. It doesn't matter how old you are. You have an insurance policy right now that if you went out on the open market, if Social Security disability did not exist, and you went out in the open market and said, I want to buy catastrophic insurance in the event I'm, I'm so disabled that I can no longer work, I want the insurance to pay my food, my living expenses, my health care expenses, I want it to pay all of that. Social Security and Medicare. It would cost a fortune. You'd be spending a couple hundred dollars, maybe a thousand dollars a month for, for insurance like that. You have that right now with Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. You actually have that, and people actually use it. In fact, about a third of all Social Security's payments Are for Social Security disability. Most of those people are not even sixty-five. So you know, Trump's saying that he's going to cut this and he's going to turn it over to the banks and stuff like that. This should alarm all of us. This is the actual transcript. It was uh, Joe Kernan from CNBC. He says. Do I dare ask one last question? Trump says, go ahead. This is during the Q&A session after his speech. Kernan says, entitlements ever on your plate? Trump says, at some point they will be. We have tremendous growth. We're going to have tremendous growth. This year, I, it'll be toward the end of the year. The growth is going to be incredible. And at the right time, we will take a look at that. You know, that's actually the easiest of all things, if you look. And Kernan says, if you're willing. And Trump says, big percentage. And Kernan says, to do some of the things you said, you wouldn't do in the past, though, in terms of Medicare. Trump, well, we're going to look at it. Right. They're also moving ahead. The Trump administration is also moving ahead with plans to destroy Medicaid in red states. How do they do that? They turn it into block grants. Right now, if your state has, say, you know, 100,000 people on Medicaid and, uh, you know, they're costing X, you get 100,000 times times X in federal money or a a percentage, you know, states get a certain, I I believe it's around 90% of the funds from the federal government. So what this would do is say, okay, right now you're getting, let's say, you know, $50 million a year for Medicaid for your state of Alabama or whatever. So we're just gonna block granted at that. And going forward, you're never gonna get any more. As medical expenses continue to rise, if we hit a recession and people lose their jobs and have to go on Medicaid, they won't be able to. And the Medicaid program will start basically cutting people off. Sorry, you've already spent, you know, all the money we had allocated for you. We're not going to pay for your expensive chemotherapy. That kind of stuff. Meanwhile, in the impeachment hearing, one of the most interesting things relative to that came out of Davos also. Donald Trump was there, as I said, you know, earlier this week. And somebody had asked him about the White House withholding evidence. And he says, honestly, we have all the material. They don't have the material. I mean, you know, obstruction of justice, anybody? Just to add to the, you know, a little kindling to the fire here, you know, the Republicans have been fighting to end the Affordable Care Act, you know, which is kind of mind-boggling. You blow up the Affordable Care Act, they want to do, take down the entire thing. So the Medicaid expansion goes away, but perhaps more importantly, the rules that say insurance companies can't screw you if you get sick and can't refuse to pay your bills if you have pre-existing conditions, all that will come back, which will be a terrible thing for the country and a terrible thing for the Republican Party, because this is a lawsuit that was joined by you know 20-some-odd Republican secretaries of states and governors and the Trump administration. So John Roberts and the Supreme Court gave them the cover they want. They said, don't worry, we'll discuss this after the election. Honest to God. We'll discuss it after the election. So anyway, uh, let's pick up some phone calls here. Bill watching Free Speech TV in Sebastian, Florida. Hey, Bill, what's up? Good afternoon, Tom. Yeah,
4: Trump coming after the uh, Social Security is uh, another example of his... uh Lack of compassion for humanity in general, right? And um, all the tweets he's been putting out—it's a sign of his mental deterioration. And I think it's a lot more than diet coke, son. Let's let's get real here. It's that Adderall, whatever it was that he was taking. He looks awful.
5: Looks yeah. absolutely awful. Yeah.
3: You know, a lot can be attributed to age and stress. I mean, we've seen president after president go into the White House, go into the presidency with, you know, full color in their hair and come out gray. It's, you know, including President Obama. Not completely gray, but, you know, you see, you know, it it ages people if they take it seriously. And, and, And even though Trump has not been working as president. He, he spends most of his time playing golf or watching TV. He still is experiencing an incredible amount of stress as a result of, you know, the crimes that he's committed being revealed. And, the, and, the, and thank you, Bill, for your comments. And the crimes of the Trump crime family starting to come out from Ivanka and Don Jr., you know, the hustles that they've engaged in, the property fraud, the Trump University fraud the nonprofit organization, Fraud, where all three of them, the kids had to go through non-fraud training. I mean, it's amazing. It's just amazing. Nick, watch us on Facebook in Cliffside Park, New Jersey. Hey, Nick, what's up?
6: Hey, I want to say that the only thing that can possibly result in Trump actually being removed from the presidency is when the Republican Senate realizes, especially obviously McConnell, that they will lose their jobs in November if they vote to acquit Trump, especially if they do so without hearing all of the witnesses and all of the evidence. And the way for the Democrats to achieve that end is not to simply have a legalistic presentation which is legally brilliant and airtight to the senators because the Republican senators are not stupid, they're not ignorant, most of them are lawyers. They know that Trump is guilty of sin what the democrats have to do is make a case that appeals directly to the people to the population use exhibits and use language and use emotion and passion that makes it so spectacularly interesting to watch this that it will be watched, not just in America, but throughout the world, so that it actually changes people's minds. I've made the point sharp enough that I think you can pick up on it, and maybe somebody, somebody in the Senate is hearing this.
3: I mean, the presentations were pretty damn brilliant, and they did a very, very good job of making sure that in the first couple of hours, and also in prime time later on, that they had Adam Schiff out there. He is the most articulate, I think, of the bunch, and the most practiced. I mean, this guy was a prosecutor for years. He knows how to present a case. (laughs) <laughs> in Los Angeles. Hey, Lamar, what's up?
6: Yeah, hey, Tom, how are you doing? Good. Great. Quick question. Um, do you have any confidence in the impartiality of John Roberts? And I'm basing that on the fact that he and the Supreme Court decided to hear Trump's case about releasing his taxes and they decided to hear the case which I thought was a case that they, they normally would not hear. So I'm just kind of wondering how impartial he's going to be during a Senate
3: trial. Roberts has been a Republican actor for a long, long time. I mean, he was in the Reagan Justice Department in 2000. He flew down to Florida and helped help them put together the uh, challenge, to, you know, the Bush v. Gore Supreme Court challenge to stop the recount in Florida. He was rewarded for that by George W. Bush by making him chief justice. That's who he is. And, and then, you know, he gutted the, the Voting Rights Act. So no, I don't have a lot of confidence in Roberts impartiality. I think he's going to do everything he can to cut the Republicans as much slack as possible. That said, he does have the weight of history on his shoulders. I mean, the 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 one thing that we've seen about Roberts in the last couple of years is that he seems to be becoming an institutionalist. So the big question, and we won't know the answer until we see how he behaves, is whether John Roberts' loyalty to the institution of the Supreme Court. And the Constitution outweighs his loyalty to the Republican Party. And I, frankly, I don't know the answer to that. Lamar, I don't think anybody does because he has been such a political actor. But that's the question. I mean, you've identified one of the biggest questions of the day. Lamar, thanks a lot for the call. We'll be back.
7: 2020, a new year. It's the perfect opportunity to take your business to the next level by hiring the right people. But finding qualified candidates can be challenging. ZipRecruiter.com slash begin makes it easy. ZipRecruiter sends your job to more than 100 of the web's leading job boards. But they don't stop there with their powerful matching technology. ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes and finds people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash B-E-G-I-N. ZipRecruiter.com slash begin. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. This is the
3: Tom Hartman Program. Ruth in Bud Lake, New Jersey. Hey, Ruth, what's up?
1: Hello, Tom. How are you? I'm fine. Good Good to hear your voice on the phone here hey i'm calling because i'm in new jersey and up in massachusetts we have two great senators markey and senator warren right. and here we have a congressman kennedy trying to upset the apple cart and he's going to go after ed markey's seat which is totally right. ridiculous as far as i'm concerned And i've been conveying that information to his campaign as best i could and have subsequently donated to ed markey's reelection campaign yeah but my question is now should Mr. Kennedy be concentrating on in the impeachment and all these problems that we have in like right staring right in our faces with the Republic instead of going after a solid progressive Democrat yeah I think I, I think Joe
3: Kennedy is shooting himself in the foot with this one although I'm not that close to Massachusetts politics but just you know looking at it from the other side of the country that's what it looks like to me and frankly there's I think there's a reasonable chance that Massachusetts is going to be missing a Democratic senator in 2020 or 2021 if Elizabeth Warren wins the nomination and gets sworn in. And if that's the case, the Republican governor will appoint a uh, Republican to the Senate, but they'll be basically a placeholder. And at that point, Joe Kennedy should get into the race and run against that person. But yeah. you know, apparently he's a little too impatient for that. But,, like I said, I you know I'm not I've never lived in Massachusetts. I've lived in Vermont, New Hampshire, but and so I have a passing familiarity with the politics of that state. I think he's making a mistake. But thanks for the call. Lawrence in Valdosta, Georgia. Hey Lawrence, what's on your mind today?
5: Well, my problem is this, Tom, I see an intersection of the DNC and the mainstream media as it applies to Bernie Sanders. I think they are colluding to block him from attaining the Democratic nomination.
3: You know, I'm sure, Lawrence, that there are probably a lot of people on corporate television, you know, where, as I pointed out before, basically the pay scale starts at a million dollars a year once you've got a full-time on-air gig. People who are making that kind of money tend not to be, you know, real enthusiastic about Democratic socialism. So I'm sure that there's some hostility in the media. I certainly pick it up from time to time. But I don't, well, I don't think it's just the
5: media employees, per se. It's the people that own the media. They are the one percenters yeah. that have a lot of skin in the game in terms of Bernie suggesting that we need to change our basic system in this yeah. country.
3: Yeah, no, Lawrence, and, uh, you're right. There is an inherent hostility within the media, and whether it's Bernie or Elizabeth Warren, either one of them are going to confront that because they're the two, you know, genuinely progressive candidates who are not taking money from big corporations like the corporate media. Well, you know, I believe all the rest of the major, all the rest of the candidates who are polling more than two percent are, are taking money from the corporations. So, you know, they are going to be the focus of a whole lot of hostility, and you can expect that to ramp up. But, I, you know, that just means that we have to all get out there. We need to be supportive of our nominees or our candidates or whoever the nominee is. And we need to get progressives involved. I, you know, there's just no other way around it. Lawrence, thanks for the call. John in Minneapolis. Hey,
8: John, what's up? Yeah, um, I just wanted to say that... This is the time where we should be most active because democracy. I mean, I know it sounds really tinny, but democracy actually works. And what Ralph Nader said was pushing the Congress in that direction and the political party and, you know, the Democratic leadership is what we need uh, to do. Oh, they drank the Kool Aid, the, you know, neoliberal uh, Milton Friedman Kool Aid. And it seemed like, you know, I mean, even for myself, it seemed like, oh, well, I guess this is just you know, just works. Well, it doesn't. In the long run, all the critics of it that recognized it from the very beginning saw the flaw in it, and now we have to undo it, which is incredibly hard, but it is not impossible. Political economy can change, and people have changed. The opinion has changed. Uh, The young people have changed. The Sunrise Movement is proving this. So between the Sunrise Movement and people like yourself, Free Speech TV, and just, you know, an awareness of what is going on, we really can make a change. I've been involved with progressive politics all my life, and, you know, you can change the party. It isn't hopeless. It really is not.
3: Yep. Yeah, I completely agree. Very well said. Thank you very much, John. Uh, spot on. Joan in Nashville, Tennessee. Hey, Joan, what's up?
9: Hey, Tom. Okay. uh, I guess it's because I'm African American and, you know, the experiences of whites and African Americans in this country, you know, the experiences are just so different. Mm -hmm. But I see it kind of like if anyone other than a rich white male is doing what Donald Trump is doing, even if it was a white woman, They would have been out of office a long time ago. If Obama had said or done any one of the things that Trump did during his candidacy, Obama never would have been elected. I agree. And what whites don't seem to understand, and I'm not saying this to be pejorative in any way, and I know whites hate to be made to feel any kind of discomfort when it comes to race. But this country worships three things. This is my opinion. Whiteness, maleness in general, white maleness in particular, and specifically wealthy white males. Now, Nixon and Clinton were white males because that's all they were, you know, being elected. But they were not born to wealth. Trump was born to wealth. He was raised with a sense of entitlement that's greater than that of the average white male. Well, that was and that, to look at that.
3: But I think that this is probably more class privilege than it is race privilege. Although I, I completely agree that had this been President Obama, in fact, Bill Maher does a bit on his show. You know, if Obama had done it, right? Had this been President Obama, or had this been President Hillary Clinton? the knives would have been out on day one and in fact with regard to obama they were constantly i agree with you but that it's, it's
9: a double standard uh yeah. Tom. it's the double standard yeah i get it uh dylan ruth killed nine unarmed people after bible study sitting there in a house of worship studying the Bible stood up and murdered those people in cold blood the police who picked him up took him to a fast food restaurant to get a cheeseburger now you and I know that that never would have happened had Dylan moved been black it's the double standard Amen. and white have to face the truth how are we going to get past this and, and you know change of course usually causes pain. I mean, look what happened to Representative Ilhan Omar. What she said was the truth. Yeah. This country was built on greed. It's maintained on greed. And why was everyone upset? Because she told the truth.
3: So acknowledging, the these, acknowledging these power disparities and privilege disparities in our culture. I'm with you, Joan. What do we do about Donald Trump disrespecting our presidency?
9: You do what you would do if he was President Obama. If his skin color was black, you would do to him the same thing you would do to any black person. You know, I was 21 years old the first time I voted. And I've never voted since then, because I realized with that first vote that democracy is just a rigged system. But, thing. Joan, if every African-American
3: I, in, the, in the country said, that's a, it's a rigged system, screw it, I'm not going to vote, do you realize how destructive that would be to our processes?
9: What has it gotten us? Well, I think it's got,
3: it got us an African-American president. It, it got us the Civil Rights Act. And, but we, but mean, we can't you know, just walk away from it, Joan.
9: What choice do we have if we don't? Well, vote? I think, I think we you, you, you
3: vote for the best you can, and then you also get inside the party and try to be the change that you're talking about. It just seems that saying, no, I'm not going to, I'm not going to participate in, my, in the democracy that, that I'm part of, is counterproductive. But i gotta move along but thank you for the call appreciate it laura in santa rosa california hey laura what's on your mind today
0: hello tom how are you i'm all um, what's on my mind oh, i'm sorry what's on my mind i was just really livid listening to joan on the call just let me tell you i'm an african-american person who have been voting since i was 18. the reason i vote is because women died and people of color died many people died so that i could have the right to vote i will never stop voting that's the first thing i do agree with what joan has said up until the point about not voting i worked for sanders campaign and then i graduated and worked for hillary's campaign i have been working and voting and marching and donating and when i get frustrated I simply up the ante. What I'm doing right now is I'm calling my congresspeople every day. I will be the thorn in their side every day because I will not give up and allow these individuals to win. How can we look at all of the corruption that's going on and then we focus on this little minute thing? Now, I do agree that we need to progress to impeachment. It is vitally important that we do that. But here's the thing. I am not going to get frustrated and go away. They will not get away with not doing their constitutional duty, because we are a collective. and America, we get the democracy we deserve. And if we do not stand up and continue to fight... We will pay the consequences. And I'm the person who called in many, many, many calls ago. You probably don't remember. And I asked you the question, do you think the Republicans or the individuals that are, what is it, the the fifth column?
5: Mm -hmm.
0: I don't know if you remember that call. That was my question. Do you think that they're the fifth column? I think we have our answer, right?
3: Yeah, it's certainly looking like it. And number one, let me just thank you for being an activist, for being a participant, for voting. I was with Joan right up until she said, "Therefore, I'm not going to vote." And at that point, you know, she lost me too. And I would take it even a step farther. After what we'd heard from Seth Abramson, if his book is true, and it's it's 600 pages of you know documents and details and footnotes and and all this kind of stuff. If if this is true that this coalition of countries, um, including Russia, Israel, the UAE, Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, and Egypt, conspired to flip our election for Donald Trump in 2016, and all probability, are doing it again for 2020. The thing that concerns me the most out of that is that the only country in that entire list that's actually a democracy is Israel. And I don't think that this is the Israeli government doing this. I think it's Bibi Netanyahu and his party. And I think that his tendencies toward autocracy are as strong as Donald Trump's you know, we're still theoretically a democracy, too. What this tells me is that, you know, the ascendant, essentially, international conspiracy in the world right now is one of autocracy, of of strongman governments. I mean, we saw this with Trump, with Modi. You see it with Trump with Duterte in exactly. the Philippines. You see it with Trump with uh, you know Erdogan in in Turkey. I mean, he's just all the only people that he's getting you know getting down with, being friendly with, you know, hanging on to, hugging are autocrats and dictators. It's just this is this.
0: exactly, and we can't just sit back and allow this to happen. Yeah as I said, we get the democracy we deserve. And if we're just gonna give up, if we're gonna, all we're gonna do is complain and do nothing about it, then we are equally as responsible. Yes. So we have to become more active, no matter how painful it is. I am really tired of marching, I'm too old for this. I am tired of marching, but I will not stop. I am tired of donating, I will not stop. And I'm gonna tell you something, I've decided, this is not about what's politically expedient. This is not about getting people in Trump land to vote for them or to continue to vote for them. Because as a person who stood up for Sanders and Hillary, I feel as if I have been everything that I worked for is being ignored and taken for granted. Yeah, We all stood up for the right thing. Just plain and simple. As my father say, do it simply because it's the right thing to do.
3: Brilliant. Laura, you said it so much better than I could have. I I thank you so much. And for people who want to follow your example and call their member of Congress and encourage impeachment, etc., the number is 202-225-3121 or 224-3121. It used to be one was for the House and one was for the Senate. Now, both of them, uh, you know, you can get to either one from either one. Laura, thank you so much for the call. It's great to hear from you.
0: Thank you. you. God bless, Tom. Thank you for all the work that
3: you do. I'll I'll take all the blessings I can get. Thank you, Laura.
2: This is the Tom Hartman Program.
3: Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Proof of Conspiracy, How Trump's International Collusion is Threatening American Democracy by Seth Abramson. This is from the introduction. In late 2015, after Donald Trump has formally announced his candidacy for president, a geopolitical conspiracy emerges overseas whose key participants are the leaders of Russia, Israel, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, and Egypt. These six men decide that Trump is the antidote to their ills. For Russia, U.S. sanctions. For Israel, the lack of Arab allies. For Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, and Egypt, perceived threats emanating from Iran. The conspirators commit themselves to doing whatever is necessary to ensure that Donald Trump is elected. Trump's presidential campaign is aware of and benefits from this conspiracy both before and after the 2016 election. On March 19, 2018, British journalist David Hurst, the former chief foreign leader writer for The Guardian, publishes the most important report of his career. Hearst, at one time the Moscow bureau chief at The Guardian, is now editor-in-chief of his own publishing venture, a London-based Middle East watchdog called the Middle East Eye. In the spring of 2018, he reports the existence of a years-long, continent-spanning conspiracy that will eventually envelop the President of the United States, the Red Sea Conspiracy. This book denominates the conspiracy Hearst uncovers as the Red Sea Conspiracy for the simple reason that it is hatched on a yacht in the middle of the Red Sea, a seawater inlet of the Indian Ocean bordered by, among other countries, Saudi Arabia and Egypt. One imagines that in his many years as a correspondent and commentator for the Scotsman, the Huffington Post, Al Jazeera, Al Arabi, al Jaid, TRT World, which is Turkish, Masr al-Agon, Egypt, and The Guardian, Hearst never thought he'd stumble on a story as far-reaching in its implications as the Red Sea conspiracy. But he did, and what he found could change the course of history. This book chronicles the events around the globe that preceded and followed the fall 2015 origin of the conspiracy, with a special focus on how the conspiracy prompted Donald Trump and his aides, allies, and associates to covertly collude with six countries, both before and after the 2016 presidential election—Russia, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Israel, Bahrain, and Egypt— Events that began on the Red Sea in 2015 now influence President Trump's foreign policy toward all of these countries, toward other countries not involved in the conspiracy, such as Qatar and Iran, and more broadly toward Europe, Asia, and the Middle East. The story of the Red Sea conspiracy begins with a man named George Nader. As reported by Hearst in the Middle East Eye, toward the end of 2015, Nader, then an advisor to the Crown Prince of Abu Dhabi, Mohammed bin Zayed Al Nayan, known as MBZ, convened, with his patron's permission, a summit of some of the Middle East's most powerful leaders. Gathered on a boat in the Red Sea in the fall of 2015 were Mohammed bin Salman, known as MBS, Deputy Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, who would shortly become the heir apparent to the throne of the Saudi kingdom. MZB himself, by 2015 the de facto ruler of the United Arab Emirates. Abdel Fattah el-Sisi, the president of Egypt, Prince Salman bin Hamad, the crown prince of Bahrain, and King Abdullah II of Jordan. Nader, the improbable maestro of these rulers' clandestine get-together, intended the plan he posed to the men to include the nation of Libya, but no representative from that nation attended the gathering. Of the leaders aboard the yacht, too, MBS and MBZ are already close. According to a New Yorker interview with Richard A. Clark, a counterterrorism adviser advisor to Presidents Barack Obama and George W. Bush, MBS and MBZ, quote, talk on the phone all day to each other, end quote. The Red Sea meeting, although technically convened by Nader, is a means for MBZ to advance ambitions that he and MBS have designed together. The two Sunni Arab leaders' intention, Hearst records, is to remake the Middle East with the covert assistance of a highly placed American politician. They intend to do this by first renaming and reconstituting the membership of the six-member Gulf Cooperation Council, the GCC, which in 2015 comprises Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, Kuwait, Oman, and Qatar, while reorienting, too, its regional ambitions and global alliances. The proposed GCC realignment would evict Kuwait, Oman, and Qatar from the Council and replace these three countries with Egypt, Jordan, and Libya, thereby eliminating the entity's historical association with the Persian Gulf and remaking it as, instead, an alliance constituting, quote, an elite regional group of six countries which would supplant the GCC and form the nucleus of a coalition of pro-US and pro-Israeli states in the Middle East, end quote. According to two sources briefed on the 2015 Red Sea Summit, quote, Nader said this group of states could become a force in the region That the united states government could depend on to counter the influence of turkey and iran end quote prior to 2015 turkey and saudi arabia had intermittently enjoyed strong diplomatic ties book proof of conspiracy by seth abramson jeff in west los angeles hey jeff what's on your mind
4: hey don how are you today i was hoping we could talk about the constitution a little bit okay all this discussion about impeaching trump Article 3, Section three, One clearly defines crimes against the United States. It is the section of the Constitution that defines treason. And it goes on to say that treason is defined as a crime against the United States. You need to define the crime. For instance, in Paul Manafort's case, conspiracy against the United States. The crime has to be defined of what it is and who the aggrieved person or yes, he is. Where are you
3: this, going with this, case? Jeff? What's your point? Make well, your point and then, and then and then and then support it rather than going going the other way around.
4: Okay, I apologize. There is a way to remove Trump without impeachment because the Founding Fathers did anticipate this very scenario where the President of the United States could betray his country. You will see in Article Two, Section Two Four, it says quite clearly, it's just one sentence the president and vice president or all officers of the united states government shall be removed from office upon conviction of or excuse me impeachment for and conviction of treason bribery and all other high crimes however article 3 section 3 2 says that the congress has the power to declare the punishment of treason no no two-thirds majority it's a simple majority they can impeach him in the house. Well, hang on just a minute.
3: What that means, Jeff, is that Congress writes the laws, and part of those laws is what the punishment is. So Congress can pass a law saying, here are the, the 16 things that we consider to be treason, and, you know, the, the top one is the death penalty, and the bottom one is 30 days in jail, and here's... I mean, that's all, all that's doing is giving power the, Congress the power to authorize specific punishments for specific crimes.
4: Okay, then also, am I incorrect in the assumption when it says in the, uh, okay, so we'll-, we'll, well let, me, let me, in
3: fact, let me I'll, add I'll, to that, I'll, Jeff. I'll once works. Congress authorized, once Congress passes a law that says this is illegal and here's what the punishment is for it, then the, because it's now part of the U.S. Code of Law, the remedy for that is for the Justice Department, that would be William Barr, you know, through federal prosecutors, if, assuming that we're talking a federal crime here, to bring charges. And okay. I'm not holding my breath that William Barr is going to bring any charges against Donald Trump or anybody else in his administration.
4: Okay, so one other point. Now it also says quite clearly that the president has full power of the pardon, and then it says semicolon except under except, except for impeachment. Except, it says except in cases of in cases of impeachment. Right. So does that mean if Donald Trump is being impeached, he does not have the power to impeach a pardon himself, or does that possibly mean because he is the president? He is not allowed to pardon anybody, including no Well,
3: nobody, I, nobody's really sure, Jeff, because it's never been adjudicated by the Supreme Court. And, uh, but it seems to suggest that if Donald Trump, for example, was on the verge of being impeached, and he was on the verge of being impeached because of testimony from, say, Michael Cohen, and he was to say to Michael Cohen, hey, I'll give you a, a pardon if you'll refuse to testify, that that pardon would not be legal. That's my understanding of how broadly that's understood. But again, it's not been adjudicated, so there's, you know, there's uh, some ambiguity around it. Jeff, thanks for the call. Ted in Federal Way, Washington. Hey, Ted,
4: what's up? I guess I wanted to clarify, other than him, if he loses the election and refuses to concede, that's the most he can do other than incite
2: his followers to violence, correct?
3: I think so, although the latter is something that I don't think is beyond his capacity, and it's something that his lawyer and a former vice president of his company for 12 years, Michael Cohen, explicitly warned us about.
4: And it's certainly something to be concerned about, but I guess, on january 20th of 2021 at that point you can just add trespassing to a list of crimes
3: yeah yeah there you go it's going to be a real strain on our system of federalism on, on our democracy on our republic you know and whether the courts you know what they can do what congress can do how the military is going to respond how the secret service responds all of these things in my mind right now are unknowns ted and that concerns I, me tremendously
4: well i would like to think that once it's obvious that he's no longer president, that a lot of people would step out and do the right thing?
3: I certainly hope so. That's what I fully expect. But there are a lot of things that I fully expected would happen throughout this presidency that didn't happen the opposite happened i never expected that, that you know during a time of a strong economic recovery that they would be able to pass a trillion and a half dollar tax cut that they would even be so stupid as to do that you know and, and raise the national debt by 2 or 3 trillion dollars in the in the process you know i never believed that they would try to incite war with north korea or with iran i mean it's just the idea of tearing literally babies from their mothers and putting them in dog cages laying on the dirt um, you know, in the freezing cold at night and during the, the hot of day. Literally, I, I did not believe that Donald Trump, Mike Pence, and Stephen Miller were capable of such god-awful cruelty. And, uh, and would, here it is. You, you would think that alone would
4: be enough for people to turn on it.
3: You would think. And and certainly, I would say, you know, most of the people who are looking at Democratic candidates have already turned on him. But he's got this base and they're living in a media bubble. They call into this program occasionally and they are so malinformed. It's not that they're underinformed it's not that they don't know what's going on they actually believe things that aren't true and that's the result of you know Rupert Murdoch owning Fox News and right wing hate radio and all the money that flows into right wing hate radio from all these foundations and organizations that are funded by these right wing billionaires it's a dangerous dangerous time ted and we need to be vigilant and we need to show up and as Nancy Pelosi pointed out we need to win overwhelmingly so that there's no way that Trump can claim that the election was was rigged or stolen or whatever. So, Ted, I got to run. But thank you for the call. And thanks for listening to KBCS. Jenny in Miami Beach, Florida. Hey, Jenny, what's up?
10: I'm a former resident of New York. I've lived here in Miami about eight years now. And in 2016, I still have family in New York. My dad was kicked off of the voter rolls in New York City. Um, He lives in Queens. I know there was this big emphasis on people being kicked off of the voter rolls in areas like Brooklyn, for example. Mm -hmm. But the truth is that people were kicked off of the voter rolls in all areas, the Bronx, Brooklyn, Queens, all of these very big, densely populated areas. So my dad, from 2016, he still hasn't been reinstated. He's an elderly voter. I called, got everything sent to his house. However, what I find really interesting is that, one, people have to re-register themselves in New York because they're not going to be automatically re-registered. And I lived in New York eight years ago. I moved. I voted here several times. I haven't voted over in New York And I'm still registered. When I lived Mm. in New York, I lived in a more affluent area of Queens, and I've checked my registration through the years, and I find it hilarious that supposedly they do these voter purges, you know, and they send you a letter to your house to check if you still live there, and if you don't live there or don't answer it, they automatically kick you off. But that's not true all around. They only did that in certain areas because the area where I lived in Whitestone, which was a predominantly more affluent area, There are people who still haven't been kicked off that no longer live there, and I'm a prime This is one of the reasons
3: why I wrote the the hidden history and the war on voting. (laughs) I mean, this this is we need a constitutional amendment to say that there is an explicit right to vote. And you know, if we had a, because we don't have a right to vote. I mean, in the in the Bush v. Gore decision, Chief Justice Rehnquist literally said there is no right to vote for president of the United States of the Constitution. Uh, that's verbatim from that decision. And there needs to be a right to vote because if there was a right to vote, they couldn't mess with your vote like this. They would have to jump through 16 different hoops before they purged you. And uh, instead, Republicans, in particular, in some places, you know, some Democrats, I suppose. But you know, this is this is core to the Republican campaign strategy is kicking people off the voting rolls. So, Jenny, thanks for sharing your story. It sensitizes people to
2: what's going on. You're listening to Tom Hartman.
3: Hey, my new book, The Hidden History of the War on Voting, uh, Who Stole Your Vote and How to Get It Back, is uh, arriving in bookstores on February 10th. More information is available at all fine bookstores. I cover how the heartbeat of democracy depends on the vote. This book goes into depth on the racist legacy of our vote and the unique struggles of African-Americans, women, and Native Americans. In part two, there's a deep dive into the economic royalist modern war on voting. And part three is the solution section, how to get out there and get active. I'm also on the road to the book tour for The Hidden History of Voting. Join me on Monday, February 17th in San Francisco for the Berkeley Arts and Letters series. On Wednesday, February 19th at Town Hall, Seattle. Sunday, February 23rd for the Blue State Ball in Minneapolis. Friday, February 28th at Powell's in Portland and Sunday, March 1st, in Chicago. More information is available at TomHartman.com. This book is the third in the series after the hidden history of guns in the Second Amendment and the hidden history of the Supreme Court and the betrayal of America. (music) Welcome back. Tom Hart here with you. And uh, Wes in Chattanooga, Tennessee, you're on the air.
5: Yes, thank you, Tom, for taking my call. Sure. I just try to keep a positive attitude about things, but... It annoys me when I hear what do mean? Uh, the point that they tried to make uh, concerning racism. They call into a white talk show and try to explain to a white man their frustrations with the white man and how the white man is did this and that and other. I want to see the positive things that I can do. I read a prayer that says, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things that I cannot change, courage to change the things that I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. You have to analyze these things on an individual basis other than try to group everything in one lump sum. I try to criticize a sad person, just like you said, as Miss Nasser Pelosi says, you can't, you know, hate people that that vote for Trump and whatnot. Hell, you go around with all kind of hate all the time.
3: Yeah. Well, the hate is corrosive, you know, to yourself. I agree, West. But on the other hand, what's the appropriate response to somebody who puts up a Facebook post calling for the lynching of an African American state representative?
5: There's That's no happening. response. It's no response. It's ignorance. And to yeah. feed into it, you're going to come out with a negative yourself. You're right. So, two negatives, there's no way, you know, going to get anything positive out of it. So, I mean, it's attitude daily, constantly, you know? You have to analyze these things, man, and not keep on crying about it. Do something. Do something. If it's just something uh, for yourself, other than just complaining about the same thing about the white man because white man ain't no change. you ain't no Mm. (laughs) changing thank you very much
3: thank you wes well i think you know i think some people can learn but (laughs) change i don't know boy what a topic steve in phoenix arizona hey steve what's up
2: uh, good morning, Tom. You know, I have to kind of disagree with your last caller a little bit. I think some we can affect some change, and it's very important.
3: Oh, I don't uh, think he wasn't saying change. He was saying no. have the wisdom to know the difference between what you can and can't change.
2: Well, let me go into this, and I'll tell you why. First of all, though, I'd like to say, Dr. King, you know, he wasn't just for black people. He was for working people across the United States, You're right. you know. And white people, they never got that memo, you know. A lot of them didn't. Some did. 50% didn't. But anyways, I want to talk about where that we can go to affect that change. Number one, I'm for Bernie. You probably know that. But um, we're never going to get Republicans to work with us and to get this change to happen. What we need to do is get all three branches of of the government, the Senate, the Congress, and the President. They've been stonewalling us since Barack Obama took office. The day he took office, 11 years ago, right near to the day here. And they had that caucus room meeting. And uh, Mitch McConnell and them, they've been instructing everything that Obama wanted to do for the whole eight years of his presidency. And right now, we've got 275 bills sitting on uh, Moscow Mitch's desk, which he uh, is not going to do nothing about. And, you know, it really doesn't matter who's going to be president, whether it's Amy Klobuchar Bernie, or whoever of the Dems, if we don't get all three branches, and uh, I agree. Whoever, whoever it is, they will stonewall, just like they did Obama.
3: Actually, I wouldn't agree that nothing's going to happen, but we really need to take all three branches of government, because you're absolutely right, Mitch McConnell has been following up on the caucus room conspiracy rhetoric, uh, or plan, actually. I mean, it was an actual strategy, which you can track down. I mean, you can just Google caucus room conspiracy, and you'll see the same thing. Steve, thanks for the call. Greg in Issaquah, Washington. Hey, Greg, what's up?
6: Tom, I was just wondering with respect to what Mitch McConnell is doing, suppressing, and it looks like they're going to block in this uh, Democrat witch hunt, which next path will it take? And let me clarify, there's so many likely branches of corruption. Which do you hunt? So. Yeah. I was just trying to get your sense of the Stormy down stuff, the Deutsche Bank records.
3: Oh, it, it and, and it continues. Little... I mean, just these briefing high-end donors in Florida about, you know, military raids that he won't discuss with Congress. I mean, it's just, it's like, you know, A, you know, how how much more can we take? And B, how do we repair ourselves? How do we repair our country from the damage that not just Donald Trump, but Donald Trump and his billionaire buddies... Have inflicted on this country, and 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 you know it's. I was just saying, you know, it, I, it, was just saying yeah, I want to get
6: the evidence out of all the different things so people can, in the next election, can decide.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's hope that the next election produces some really dramatic change. I have a a strong sense that it will, but on the other hand, day after day after day, we see, you know, West Virginia just threw a couple hundred thousand people off the voting rolls aggressively in the cities, in the places that vote for Democrats. Hundreds of thousands of people in West Virginia. Ohio did it a while ago, and the Supreme Court said, oh, it's just fine. I mean, it's going to be a tough election, because these guys are rigging the table. Our book today is Playing With Fire, The 1968 Election and the Transformation of American Politics by Lawrence O'Donnell. The first chapter, Seizing the Moment, it starts in 1968. Richard Nixon was in a makeup chair when he met Roger Ailes. Maybe it was the makeup chair that set Ailes off. He was looking at the man who might have been president right now if he had just sat in the makeup chair CBS offered him in Chicago before the first televised presidential debate in American history. Nixon had ignored the network's makeup artist and used a drugstore product called Lazy Shave to cover his heavy 5 o'clock shadow. Nixon once said, I can shave within 30 seconds before I go on television and still have a beard. The day after the debate, the Chicago Daily News ran the headline, Was Nixon Sabotaged by TV Makeup Artists? Uh, Richard Daley, the all-powerful Democratic mayor of Chicago, said, My God, they've embalmed him even before he died. Nixon lost the election to John F. Kennedy by two-tenths of one percent of the vote, 49.7 percent to 49.5 percent. In an election that close, every mistake matters. A mistake like not getting the makeup right was the kind of thing that infuriated Roger Ailes. Now, seven years later, Ailes was meeting Nixon for the first time in the makeup room of the Mike Douglas show. At age 26, Ailes looked like an assistant, but he was the boss, the executive producer of the show. And Nixon was once again a presidential candidate in what was beginning to look like a crowded field covering the 1968 Republican nomination. Ailes wanted Nixon to be president, and he knew the most powerful force blocking Nixon's path to the White House was television. To win the White House in the 1960s, you had to understand and respect the power of television. Ailes also knew that one of Nixon's potential rivals for the Republican nomination understood everything about television, Ronald Reagan, the former film and TV actor. Ailes wondered what Nixon had learned about TV since the makeup disaster of the 1960 campaign. Sitting in the makeup chair, Nixon offhandedly mentioned to Ailes how silly it felt to try to reach voters by appearing on an afternoon talk show like this one instead of a news show like Meet the Press. The Mike Douglas Show is targeted at Housewives and usually populated by B-list, showbiz celebrities. In response, Ailes instantly rattled off a list of every bad move Nixon had ever made on TV, and it was a long list. Ailes was a teenager when he'd seen some of these things. This was not the way people talked to former Vice President Richard Milhouse Nixon. There was none of the deference that Nixon had become accustomed to over the decades, and Nixon loved it. Nixon made Ailes an offer he couldn't refuse. Instead of trying to make Mike Douglas America's biggest afternoon TV star, make Richard Nixon America's next president. With Ailes on the media team, the Nixon campaign was ready to make the move from being the worst TV campaign to the best. We're going to build this whole campaign around television, Nixon told his media team. You boys just tell me what to do and I'll do it. Roger Ailes' career in Republican politics, which included every day he ran Fox News, turned out to be longer than Richard Nixon's. Ailes became more influential in Republican politics than Nixon ever was. We have reason to wonder who would be president today if Richard Nixon had not provoked Roger Ailes in the Mike Douglas show Makeup Room. Such are the seeds that were planted in American politics in the 1968 presidential campaign. Run Bobby Run is the subhead for the next part of this. Bobby was a natural on television. In 1967, he was the only potential presidential candidate who could charm a TV audience just by being himself. All he needed was his smile. Bobby was the Elvis of American politics, the only politician who didn't need a last name to identify him. But his last name was everything. It was Bobby Kennedy's last name that made every potential candidate fear him. As the field of candidates began to take shape in 1967, every campaign calculation depended on Bobby, even when he showed no signs of wanting to run, even when he told people he wasn't going to run. President Lyndon Baines Johnson feared Bobby to the point of obsession. Johnson thought Bobby was the only one who could do the unthinkable, challenge the incumbent president's grip on the Democratic nomination. Johnson was sure that Bobby was the only Democrat who might dare run against him. He was wrong. Nixon feared Bobby, too, as did every Republican planning a campaign. Nixon knew exactly what to fear. He had lost to a Kennedy before. Losing to a Kennedy meant losing to the Kennedy political machine, and it meant losing it to the Kennedy style. A political machine can be beaten by a better political machine, though Nixon had never seen a better political machine than the Kennedys. Kennedy's style was something else. Nixon knew there was nothing Ailes could do for his image that could compete with Kennedy's style. Nixon couldn't change his sharply receding hairline. At 54, he was too old to do anything but tamp down his short, dark hair as flat as possible on his head. Bobby's hair had grown longer every year of the 1960s. Now at 42, he had the shaggiest hair in the United States Senate. His little brother Ted was the only other senator with a full head of hair. Bobby's hair was beginning to grow over his ears, rock musician length for the Senate then. And everywhere Bobby spoke, outside the Senate chamber, he was treated like a rock star. That's what Nixon and Johnson feared most about Bobby, the way the crowds responded to him. They'd never seen anything like it in politics. Nixon and Johnson were both old enough to remember the first time anyone saw fans screaming and swooning for Frank Sinatra in the 1940s before, during, and after every song Sinatra sang. America saw an even more intense version of that fan reaction when the Beatles landed in the United States in 1964. And now Nixon and Johnson saw a version of it happening to Bobby. Everywhere Bobby went, crowds worked themselves into frenzies. When he spoke, he didn't sound like any senator they'd heard before. His voice wasn't stiff and self-conscious. The book Playing With Fire by Lorenzo O'Donnell. Tom Hartman Cruise will be sailing in July of 2020. The seven-day Oceana Cruise will be going to Bermuda and I'll be hosting onboard events about the topics of the day. More info at TomHartman.com or 800-856-1155.